Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, in moments the journalist Joel Schalit, will talk about neo-fascism in Germany and the fascist strain in Israeli politics. And then the law professor Heidi Matthews will offer a critical perspective on the Me Too movement as it approaches its first anniversary. This past weekend, far-rightists marched against immigrants in Chemnitz in the former East Germany. The city was once known, ironically enough, as Karl Marxstadt. Neo-Nazi politics have a strong hold in that part of the country. Joining the march are leaders of Alternativa für Deutschland, AFD, a party gradually entering the German mainstream. It's the third largest party in parliament. Why is this happening? What's the base for this kind of politics? What are the connections to Germany's Nazi past? And speaking of neo-fascists, what is the connection of the dominant forces in Israeli politics today to European fascism? Here's Joel Shalit with some answers. Joel, a frequent guest on Behind the News, is an Israeli-American journalist based in Berlin. He's the editorial director of the online magazine Souciant and author of several books, including Jerusalem Calling and Israel versus Utopia, both from Akashic Books. Joel Shalit. Let's start with uh, the fascists on the march in Germany. Uh, they were uh, in Chemnitz, the former Karl Marxstadt, uh, ironically <laughs> enough. The fascists have been demonstrating. Who are they? What are they up about? And uh, what kind of response have you seen? We're coming off a very successful demonstration last night, a demonstration of the center left uh, in the form of a big uh, rock concert featuring some fairly left-wing punk bands and hip-hop bands against the Nazis in Chemnitz, uh, organized largely with the support of the German government, Germany's version of um, Nirvana, where the Sex Pistols' Die Totenhosen um, was the headliner. And they're kind of a boring band, but they get an audience and 65,000 people allegedly showed up for the event, which vastly dwarfed the size of the Nazi demonstrations that have been taking place in Chemnitz for the last few years. The most recent being uh, the last 10 days over the death of a, a binational Cuban German, um, of all things, uh, being claimed by the far right as an example of the criminality of Muslim immigration. He was apparently, though it has not been proved, stabbed by a combined duo of an Iraqi and a Syrian immigrant in some kind of altercation. The former East Germany is a hotbed of fascism. What's your explanation of why uh, this region, which was you know, formerly under uh, nominal communism, is now um, uh, such a hotbed of fascism? This is the biggest question being asked in, the, uh, in German politics and in the German press today. The major theme that everybody seems to be contending with is the idea that the communist period sheltered the fascist ethnic politics and, and identity of the Nazi era uh, for this community, that people who lived in the DDR were not culturally challenged and were not forced in any way by the change in political circumstances to become more culturally liberal and tolerant. And that their experience being part of, uh, you know, a reunified Germany um, uh, over the course of the last 25 years has not fostered any kind of political liberalism at all or encourage them to move any further to the left. In fact, being exposed to capitalism simply reinforced their right wing cultural identity and politics and pushed them in some ways further and further into a more Orthodox nationalism uh, closer to what they had espoused under the Third Reich. Uh, what percentage of the population are we talking about? The East has been massively depopulated since 
the early 1990s since uh, reunification, probably 20% of the population exists in the East at this point. Of the people in the East, how many are sympathetic to uh, far-right politics? I would say at least half. That's a very large number. (laughs) But you have to remember that what you call far-right politics in the East was also sheltered by the mainstream parties until recently. The consensus was simply blown apart by the arrival of Alternative for Deutschland and how well they polled. Traditionally, the SPD and the CDU had more conservative voters um, who felt that their uh, ethnic politics were, for the most part, represented by these two mainstream parties. But they have been champions of neoliberalism. They have been champions of immigration. They have been champions of cultural pluralism in their own post-World War II ways. And a lot of Germans in the East put two and two together when they saw the kinds of criticisms of the German political mainstream being offered by Alternative for Deutschland and Pegida uh, over the last three years and decided that the uh, German political echelon was simply covering up the fact that it wanted to replace, in their view, native Germans with cheaper immigrant labor. It's not an uncommon epiphany for people on the far right uh, in Europe, and it's been replicated in many countries throughout Europe over the last generation. Um, Cultural pluralism is a value obviously dear to both of us, but um, it's not a widely shared value, it seems. Um, How do you go about changing this consciousness so that uh, people aren't so um, uh, hostile to immigrants? I think that affluence makes people more tolerant. Many people in Europe's middle class throughout the European Union lost a lot of their purchasing power and social security during the uh, financial crisis, and particularly in the western half of the EU and became susceptible to far-right agitation from parties like the National Front, the Lega Nord, Alternative for Deutschland, and they hooked up with these newer EU member states and their far-right parties, who were the, who were who are the mainstream parties um, in countries like Hungary and Poland, and their numbers are swelling and they're becoming the new mainstream. The center left and the far left has to have an analysis of of this, has to come to terms with this, and has to understand that it has done nothing effective to block this new consensus from developing. All they can say is that the European Union is an agent of neoliberalism and is constantly forcing austerity down people's throats. And that's what creates a fascist backlash. But there's more to it than that. And Germany, in the sense, is is typical of all of these countries that have undergone neoliberal uh, economic reorganization and, and the downsizing of its middle class. The West never fully denazified. So is there any continuity of either personnel or ideology between the old Nazis and do? In the leadership of Alternative for Deutschland, there are persons descended from the Nazi leadership, like Beatrice von Storch. But the majority of the, the leadership of Alternative for Deutschland comes from the East. And uh, Storch is an interesting case study in terms of the continuity of her family's uh, Nazi background. Alternative for Deutschland is appealing to a very working class constituency and has a a leadership which is fairly mixed in terms of its economic background. You know, one of the one of the instigators of the riots in Chemnitz over the last week is a, a an a, an MP 
from Baden-Württemberg, who is Romanian. That hardly qualifies as, as representing any kind of continuity with the, the, with the, the Nazi aristocracy the past quite the opposite he is actually a product of the immigrant wave that has swept over germany since uh the end of the cold war the mass support for uh parties like aft i imagine they have some former left voters who as is the case with you know le pen in france or you know, uh, people who went for uh, ukip former labor voters like they feel betrayed by the left parties and so they're moving to these uh, new right organizations is that correct Yes, absolutely. Successful far-right parties in Europe are heavily dependent on the hemorrhaging of center-left and far-left parties for their membership. A big part of that has to do with the fact that they reconcile what is typical as a populist synthesis and has been since the 1980s in France, which is uh, an ostensibly left-wing social program with a right-wing cultural program. And so one of the things that they're talking a lot about in the German press right now is all the women who are attracted to Alternative für Deutschland. And because Alternative für Deutschland is, for example, talking a lot about the declining pensions in the country, uh, uh, particularly since the last uh, SPD government um, existed. The Social Democrats were largely responsible for the neoliberal policies that have uh, characterized the Merkel period. Um, she simply just continued what Gerhard Schroeder started, and that has resulted in the evisceration to a large degree of, of uh, big segments of the middle class, at least in the eyes of a lot of middle class German voters. I'm speaking with uh, Joel Shalit, uh, Israeli-American journalist based now in Berlin. So speaking of fascism and Israel, you're on this show a couple of years ago, and you uh, closed by saying it may be wrong to talk of Israel going fascist because perhaps it's always been. The other day, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu tweeted, or somebody did on his behalf, a really chilling thing about how only the strong survived, the weaker crushed. Um, that sounds like it could have come from the pages of Mein Kampf. How can we put this into perspective? I mean, is this a new development on Bibi's part, um, or how does this relate to the history of, of Israel and his, histor his political tradition? Good question. Netanyahu is simply reiterating one of the core tenets of his revisionist uh, Zionist point of view, which is which he inherited from his father, Benzion Netanyahu, which is essentially a, a militaristic outlook that the Jews will only survive by being strong and by dominating their enemies and their potential enemies. This is a, a core tenet of, of Netanyahu's worldview, while Netanyahu himself has not been identified with militarism or military adventures of the kind that his labor predecessors and Likud predecessors were identified with, such as Ariel Sharon. Yes, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu was in Sayyid Matkal, and he was a, he was a soldier of, of some distinction, but he was not a general. And so to constantly be banging on the theme of, of militaristic Jewish self-empowerment and, and strength uh, is kind of ironic for somebody who is considered, at least in an Israeli context, as being an America whisperer, a, a, a clone of first the neoconservative and now neoliberal politicians that have come to dominate American life. He He's frequently derided as being a senator from New Jersey and Israel for that reason. <laughs> How vulgar and embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's talk some about the origins of this philosophies. 
that kind of Zionism uh, that Netanyahu is an heir to grew up alongside European fascism, right? They, 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 as I think we said yesterday, um, that they, they drank from the same well, correct? Yeah. Zionism itself is a product of the same ideological milieu that produced most of the European nationalisms in the late 19th century. Zionism is a European nationalism to a large degree of that period transported to the Middle East. And so inevitably, it's going to have things in common with these ugly nationalisms that it has always sought to distinguish itself from. The revisionist trend in in Zionism has, for the last half a century, been one of the most influential ideological movements within Zionism. We have labor Zionism, which has been on the decline for many years, as you know. We also have uh, national religious Zionism, which remains very strong today and is runs in parallel with Zionist revisionism, which tends to appeal to a more secular but typically, you know, an equally nationalist sort of point of view. And proponents of a revisionist camp in the 1930s flirted with uh, fascism, uh, in particular Italian fascism, and frequently made the argument that there should be some kind of outreach to the Nazis and link up with the Nazis because they were political uh, kin in terms of their view of democratic politics. And Netanyahu comes from that camp, and Netanyahu has said strange conciliatory things about Hitler in recent years, including there was one zinger several years ago where he stated that the Palestinians gave Hitler the idea for the uh, for the Shah for the Nazi genocide that Hitler would not necessarily have undertaken the Shah without the influence of Hajamin al-Husseini, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. Yes, there is an uncomfortable historical and ideological kinship with the Nazis in his version of Zionism that we cannot deny and that is historically something that requires further examination on the part of the Jewish center-left, both in, in, the, in the diaspora and in Israel. Do you think American Jews are fully aware of the extent of this? Academics are for sure. Rank-and-file Jews who maintain an active interest in Israel don't necessarily know this to that extent. American Jews are very educated and very self-conscious about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's one of the things that they tend to be more informed on politically than other issues, including American domestic issues. But this is very uncomfortable stuff that tends not to get a public forum. It's just too negative um, um, to be a popular topic. Israel has succeeded in, nonetheless, in really damaging its reputation in the American Jewish community over the last decade in particular. And this is a hot button topic that is not unlikely to be more influential and more known of than in previous years. Let me put it that way. On the face of it, Israel looks pretty secure. They've got no credible military arrival in the conventional sense. They've utterly subdued the Palestinians and the occupied territories, aside from, you know, some occasional disturbances. But, you know, from the point of view of security establishment, I would think nothing um, life-threatening. What's driving this increased fascist edge? Netanyahu has a coalition to keep together, and it's the most extreme right-wing coalition that has ever ruled the country. And Netanyahu sees certain kinds of openings right now on the diplomatic front with Donald Trump in office that, in his view, give him a certain license to ideologically 
continue to re-engineer Israel as a fully right-wing republic with no political opposition really to speak of. Under his prime ministership, leftists are increasingly harassed at the airport, um, and the prime minister increasingly takes to Facebook to attack what he feels to be um, politicians who are opposed to his policies, such as the head of the New Israel Fund. He's very involved in, more involved than in ever, than attacking what remains of the liberal left in Israel and the liberal left in the diaspora supporting the liberal left in Israel, like the New Israel Fund. He sees himself on a crusade to finally seal the Israeli capsule politically, and I think he's probably going to be successful, at least for the, uh, in the short term. And it seems that there's fairly broad popular support for this agenda. He's a very successful political operator in that within his milieu, he, uh, he stands to succeed, yes. His success, to the degree that there is support for it, is contingent in the United States, a minority of American Jews whom he can buy off with promises of uh, influence in Israel and in the occupied territories and with other kinds of incentives. This is going to be, and this is at the expense of American Jewish support for the Israeli project in general. I don't think American Jews will ever give up on Israel, but I think that they're increasingly disinterested in it precisely because of what they determined to be a, a decline in democracy and political pluralism in Israel. And that's something that Netanyahu has no answer for and isn't particularly, I think, interested in either. I think that it, his sort of point of view is if the American Jewish community is not interested in it, well, he's got an Israel that he can live with. American Jews do send Israel a lot of money, uh, <laughs> which uh, he, he kind of needs, doesn't he? I think that like any successful establishment Israeli politician, he knows that Israel can't rely on that money forever and that Israel is becoming an incredibly wealthy country and at a certain point is going to have to stand on its own two feet and not be reliant upon foreign support the way it's been able to rely on the United States. And, and I think there's a lot of support on the Israeli right for that to eventually happen Two, because there's no point in having to worry about American Jewish influence on Israeli politics if they can stand to dispense with the aid that might give American Jews leverage. Of course, they still need the F-16s. They can build their own fighter aircraft at some point, and they probably will again. They did in the late 1980s, if you remember, and Congress shot that down because General Dynamics wanted to sell more F-16s to the Israeli Air Force. They, in fact, built a better fighter aircraft at the time that was supposed to fulfill that same role. Yeah, I was going to ask you about uh, the increasing disengagement of younger American Jews from Israel. What, and what kind of effect that's had on, on Israeli politics? The best thing you can say is that it has it is uh, worried Israel's political establishment to no end, particularly what they believe to be the identification of uh, liberal American Jews with BDS and with promoting uh, a more inclusive political environment, both for uh, Palestinian Israelis and also for the promotion of a, a final peace agreement with the Palestinians that does not eviscerate a Palestinian state. The Israeli political echelon um, under Netanyahu believes that proactive work needs to be done on the ground in the United States in order to break the consensus of younger Americans in favor of the Palestinians. 
And finally, a parochial New York question that, oh, that of broader interest. Uh, we have a uh, an insurgent young candidate for state senate here, Julia Salazar, who uh, apparently spoke some untruths about her past, uh, which has been have been the subject of uh, a couple of exposing articles. But uh, one of the strategies that these articles have taken has been to question the authenticity of her Jewishness. Uh, could you talk about that? And like you, you said, this like this kind of bleeding of of Israeli politics and Israeli political style into American politics. Uh, could you talk about that a bit? We're not used to conflicts between um, Sfaradim, you know, uh, and Mizrahim and Ashkenazi Jews in the United States. Uh, the American Jewish community is primarily of Central and Eastern European origin and Jews from the Middle East and from Southern Europe uh, and North Africa do not play any meaningful role in defining American culture, American Jewish culture and defining um, American Jewish politics. The criticism that has been leveled at uh, Julia Salazar, irrespective of whether one might consider her authentically Jewish or not, is redolent of those kinds of debates which historically have only taken place in Israel and not in the United States. And so when news of the, the controversy around Salazar's Jewishness first came out vis-a-vis the, the tablet article that, that aired it a couple weeks ago, a number of uh, Israeli friends here in Berlin learned of it and went, wow, America's becoming just like Israel. And I had the same reaction personally because America is an Ashkenazi project, at least for the Jewish community. Jews from Iraq, Jews from uh, Latin America, in our experience, simply are not politically important in the United States. Unlike in Israel, where, for example, nearly half the public population comes of the, the Jewish community comes from the Middle East. And so it's not uncommon particularly from conservative Jewish circles, to question the Jewishness of people who come from countries not associated with mainstream Jewish civilization. Um, And, you know, even though Latin America has an enormous Jewish community, the fact of the matter is that a, a lot of those Jews have not historically been considered to be of any political significance in the American Jewish community and have not been considered part of the Latin migration to the United States from countries like Argentina and Colombia and Brazil, all of which have, you know, identifiable Jewish communities. I was Joel Shalit, an Israeli-American journalist based in Berlin. You can find him on Twitter under the handle RiotGoy. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of Fünf vor Zwölf by the band Joel Schlitt mentioned Die Toten Hosen, which translates as The Dead Pants. The song title means five before twelve, as in it's getting very late. They aren't the best band in the world, but they are topical. The song from 1990 is a defense of a Turkish merchant who was beaten up by a racist mob. Now a critical look at Me Too as the hashtag approaches its first anniversary. 
While there is much to admire in it, the movement's politics and the remedies it wants are unclear. Heidi Matthews is an assistant professor at the Osgoode Hall Law School of York University, Toronto. A word about the Avital Ronell affair. For those not following this news as obsessively as some of us, Ronell is a professor of high theory at NYU with appointments at the Humanities, German, and Comparative Literature Departments. A year ago, a former graduate student of hers, Nimrod Reitman, filed a sexual harassment complaint against her, and in May, NYU suspended her for this academic year. Although she's been defended by some brand-name intellectuals, numerous stories of her appallingly high-handed treatment of students have emerged. More about the case in this interview. Here's Heidi Matthews. Let's start by exploring this notion of consent. What about importing this notion of consent, which I guess what comes from contract law and such, into sexual relations? How analogous are these realms? Yeah, that's a big point of contention. Um, I think one of my main interests uh, in this project is actually to point out how strongly disanalogous um, the traditional concept of consent that we deploy really all throughout the law, right? So what we're going to talk a little bit about liberalism and its connection to the legal system as it's framed, right? And really consent is sort of the main organizing principle throughout so much of the law, not just contract law, but in particular. And that spills over into international law as well when we start thinking of states as individuals, you know, with sovereignty, et cetera. So basically the idea just in basic Anglo-American legal systems is that the best way to facilitate individual flourishing is through facilitating individual freedom. And in order to do that, we have this notion of this sort of unconstrained, responsible, reasonable person, which used to be a reasonable man, of course. (laughs) And that person is taken to be able to exercise their will in an informed capacity and the the state's role to organize that exercise of will, but to do so in a way that really gives the widest ambit possible to the individual, right, in order to enact this concept of flourishing. Yeah, and so consent has been has been moved over from other areas of law into the into the realm of the regulation of sex in a more or less straightforward fashion. We can problematize consent and individualism in general, right? And we can do so um, in specific relation to to the sexual realm. But but the critique in terms of sex really draws on more materialist and indeed um, post-structuralist and general leftist critiques around liberalism and, and how that gets gets rolled out. Well, let's talk about, for example, a contract to buy a house. Uh, I'm going to buy a house from you. I'm going to pay a certain amount of money. The house is... You know, something I can inspect before we enter into the arrangement. I know what I want. You know what you want. Everybody's pretty certain entering into this transaction. We enter it more or less as equals and exit, you know, more or less as equals. Is that the way sex works? Well, I mean, we don't really enter, as you know, right, Doug, we don't really enter into house buying relationships as equals, but we set up legal understanding in which we do. And it seems somehow more to make sense in that situation, even though, of course, there are structural relations of inequality that are present and need to be talked about. But somehow it's more troubling um, in the sexual realm. And I think that's true for many reasons, but one of which is just a simple idea that we don't actually, I don't think it makes sense. It doesn't reflect lived sexual reality and experience to say that we know as individuals going into a sexual encounter that we know at all what we want to achieve um, before we before we get involved. And that's in due in part to the sort of mutual communicative interactional experience that sex is for, I mean, most, if not all people. Well, as you say, there's a liminal quality to sex. That's a problem for liberalism. Ugly, the obscure, yeah. the cruel... 
how does one understand consent in a realm where um, understanding is blurry and often changes from moment to moment? Basically, the law constructs it. Our understanding is premised on the notion um, there are different ways of approaching consent from a liberal legalist paradigm. One of them would be to say that consent uh, is assumed short of any eventuality that would lead us to believe that it wasn't present. Um, Another would be to demand from the outset that consent uh, was present in order for the sexual relation to be either morally or legally tenable. And that could involve a number of different approaches, right? It could involve uh, one partner verbally asking the other whether they consent, or it can be inferred from a host of other circumstances, right? And that's generally the way that these things play out, especially in the adjudicative context, is that the words and actions and other contextual factors that are present in a sexual encounter will be used to either infer presence or, or absence of consent. No, but then after the fact, often people change their minds and regret what they did. And then the notion of consent gets very blurred in retrospect. From a strictly legal perspective, consent is either present or absent in the moment of the alleged activity. So the alleged moment of non-consent, the law would look to see whether consent was present or absent at that time. But I think part of what the so-called Me Too movement has done is actually opened up quite a bit of space, at least within the realm of public discourse, for individuals to be able to come after the fact and say that their interpretation of an encounter was actually erroneous at the time and that they now understand consent, for example, to not have been absent. And so one really interesting and famous case of this over the last few months has actually been Monica Lewinsky in her recent contributions to Vanity Fair. Historically, she always said, look, Power differentials notwithstanding, she had always taken it to be a consensual encounter and that now, in light of Me Too, she's actually come to revise her initial assessment of that encounter, which is really quite fascinating. Power relations don't get much more unequal than the president and a 20-year-old intern. People would uh, question how consent can be uh, meaningful under a relation like that, with, in which the imbalance of power was so profound. Uh, is consent possible in such an environment? That's sort of the large um, open question that Me Too is sort of asking us to contemplate. How far are we willing to actually radically change the parameters under which we would normally think sex is, is okay and to shift that to being a situation where it's not okay? So a lot of the conservative, what's been called the conservative backlash to Me Too, will decry the kind of paternalism involved in assessments about power relations. That's not altogether wrong. There's this very strong sense in which social moralizing and paternalism is involved when we're telling individuals who are adults and do have a not insignificant degree of social and political capital that actually they're not permitted to have sex in those circumstances. It's a strong shift. A lot of what's come out around Me Too, most of it really, uh, has been about workplace relations. And workplaces are just shot through with structurally unequal power relations, class, race, gender, age, education. This is all being seen through the prism of sex. And how much are we talking about sex as sex? And how much are we talking about how the sex is refracting those power relations? And what about having so much of this discourse be about the sexual relation itself rather than the larger power relations. 
So the idea within the Me Too orthodoxy, I think, is to say on the one hand, yes, it's about sex and sexualized domination and abuse in the workplace. But on the other hand, what we're really trying to unveil is power and how power is actually operationalized through allegedly sexually abusive circumstances. Strangely, though, that doesn't permit us actually to see the extremely broad range of other non-sexualized scenarios within the workplace that are highly coercive and also abusive. And so it's unclear to me exactly why the sex component that we're so focused on in Me Too is actually helpful if what we're really concerned with is sort of articulating and understanding broad and structural means of coercion and abuse in the workplace, which we could talk about in terms of, you know, late capitalist relations or whatever. So what's going on with Me Too is a really strong instance of what some people call sex exceptionalism. It's just very unclear to me what we're actually getting out of that analysis that is helpful in terms of articulating a broader left politics around capitalist relations and domination in the workplace. But you've also written like, analytically reducing sexual harassment to power is a profoundly conservative political move. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think that's conservative because it's alleging that what's going on is just power and not sex at all. So it's doing both things. It's on the one hand, exceptionalizing sex, but on the other hand, immediately seeing out of the other side of our mouths, but it's not really about sex because sex is just one avenue, a very strong and dangerous avenue, according to the orthodoxy, through which power actually gets instituted and abused, abusively exerted, because there's nothing wrong with power in and of itself, right? The allegation is that it's abusively exerted. So what's going on there is we're highlighting sex, and at the same moment almost that we're highlighting the sexual component of these activities, we're taking sex itself off the table as a mode of analysis. So we haven't really delved into the erotic component here at all. And I I think part of what my project is sort of interested in is asking, really, I think for the first time, what actually a politics of sex would be, or in other words, sex as politics itself, instead of just another mode through which power is exerted. Then what is the politics of sex in this reading? I think that's a huge open question. That's what I'm trying to figure out. One of those, you mentioned earlier, the liminal quality of sex that I had talked about in some of my writing and, and talking on this issue. And I think that's really important because sex as a utopian space or a space for political activity that is not easily translatable within the normal strictures and modes of making sense of the world. I think it actually could be a really productive space. And so part of what I'm exploring most recently is the role in which, quote unquote, deviant or alternative or dark, although I don't like that terminology in particular, or cruel aspects of the sexual encounter can actually be rehabilitated, not because they're good in and of themselves or not necessarily, but because they offer us an insight into the sexual experience and what happens between either to individuals or many people or whatever, that can actually be politically productive. And so a large part of what we're missing or losing out on in terms of Me Too is sort of specifying the productive potential of those moments. Now, I understand that's quite abstract at this point. I want to make clear that that's kind of the underlying structure within which I'm, I'm articulating what might otherwise look simply like a critique of Me Too, but actually seeks to do much more. I'm speaking with Heidi Matthews, who teaches law at York University in Toronto. Now, you've also suggested that Me Too is occurring in the midst of something of a sex panic. And of course, when you say that, you're uh, denounced as, as a rape apologist. Yes, absolutely. 
<laughs> dismissing you know the real sufferings of, of real people and certainly neither of us wants to do that but uh, how do you fit this into the idea of a sex panic so the idea of a sex panic is really not not something new it's unfortunately been this language has unfortunately been taken up by actors let's say on the right or those who are broadly speaking resistant to me too or me tooism as i think it's it actually is right they're resistant to the ideology that's encouraged by me too but in reality the idea of the sex panic as an umbrella structure for understanding public outrages over things that have to do with sex has actually been deployed for many, many years. Um, Carol Vance's work has been hugely important in this respect, and she's been writing about sex panic since you know the early 80s, and there are many others. Um, in particular, it was also very useful with respect to queer theory and queer activists when they were thinking through the social outrage and outcry over the AIDS epidemic in the 80s. Sex panic really has been a tool of the left, an intellectual tool of the left that has helped us helped us in the past make sense of situations where there's an outcry over over a perceived um, societal level mischief or or bad. Using Carol Vance's words uh, herself from the early '90s, a piece that she wrote, um, she talks about how these panics quote mobilize the fears of social pollution in an attempt to draw firm boundaries between legitimate and deviant individuals and forms of sexuality. Um, and typically what happens is policy reforms will be instituted in a society in a way in which gives people the impression that actually we're doing something about the perceived mischief. Folk devils will be thrown out and then we'll sort of return to a normalcy. And oftentimes that normalcy social normalcy will be more conservative than the social situation we had before. In other words, the trend is to adopt really quite sexually conservative, so in other words, not sexually liberatory proposals of its way of dealing with the panic. And um, and so I just have, have thought all along that this is a particularly helpful way of thinking through Me Too, even though, as I said, it's been really taken up by the right. Um, and so it's difficult to talk about a sex panic now. That quote from Vance, she mentions remedies. I'm not quite clear what the remedies that the Me Too movement wants are. Uh, are they legalistic? And this is all based on you know individual testimony and anonymous accusations in a lot of cases, shame and ruin, uh, career ruin. But um, are there any kind of longer term remedies that would come out of the political realm as opposed to just this kind of realm of testimony or, or litigation? two things. One, I think the realm of testimony in the sense that uh, individuals have been making Me Too interventions or telling Me Too stories generally has been, taken place within like the social media sphere. So people will make accusations or tell a story on Twitter or Facebook. And that's not a legalistic frame at all. It's explicitly outside of the legalistic realm. And that's really what's interesting here is a sort of gap, this like wide chasm that seems to me to have opened up between me to participants, right, people who are telling their stories, who want to leverage moralism and moral claims and want to, in fact, use the language of the law in order to do that without necessarily instituting actual proceedings, whether they're proceedings in the state-based law sense or their internal proceedings, like you go to HR and complain about your boss, 
or you're on campus and you complain about a professor or a student and then that gets adjudicated within that institution. So we have this chasm that we don't seem to know what to do with right now between stories that sort of are floating around the public sphere and stories that that actually make their way into more formalized adjudicative spaces. And what's interesting, part of what's interesting to me there is the way in which actually the terminology of the law has become part of the Me Too vernacular. So when we hear Me Too contributions that do exist more or less solely in the space of social media They will mobilize the language of sexual assault and rape. But what they mean is not that they're going to go to the cops necessarily. And so there's a real bleeding of the two spheres. And it's strange to me because proponents of the orthodoxy, the Me Too orthodoxy, want to seem to keep that chasm open and yet will, on the other hand, continue to deploy the law and continue to deploy legal concepts, in particular the concept of consent. And one particular way in which orthodox proponents of Me Tooism have taken legal language and concepts and tried to transpose them as an activist move within regular civil society, let's say, has been to argue explicitly for a, a strong reformation in the way that we traditionally conceptualize consent to sex. And so the whole argument about enthusiastic or affirmative consent is where that has taken place. And we see that's filtering down in daily life all over the place. The Me Too partisans would argue, correctly in a lot of cases, that the legal system is just not very friendly to victims of sexual assault, uh, that is humiliating, um, often very uh, ineffective. And there are also structural issues. I mean, you can't, there are rarely witnesses uh, or physical evidence, so it's just one word against another. Um, So it's very hard to adjudicate these things in classic legal fashion. What about that? If the legal system is not adequate to handle these kinds of problems, which are very real, then what can? Yeah, I don't want to say that um, I have all the answers. I, do, I certainly don't, right? I think. Damn, I thought um, you did. I think, and I think it would be unfair to expect me to have all the answers. But what I will say is this. There are some good things coming about um, from the, the movement or the ism. And I think one of them is really exposing to the general public the problems that exist within our criminal justice system. Those concerns are real. I would be the last person on the planet to advocate in some kind of straightforward or strong sense for the criminal law as a solution to a social problem in any circumstance. So I am a massive detractor of the criminal law for many, many, many reasons. On the other hand, though, it's really not at all clear that adjudicating or rather not adjudicating, explicitly not adjudicating, but just throwing it all out there and including judgmental language and including a modified legal response amorphously within the social sphere isn't an answer either. Now we're in a situation where we've got this huge morass of men, mostly men, um, although now Asia Argento as well, um, and Avital Ronell, who have been blacklisted from society, uh, and we don't know what to do with them, when to let them back in, what their rehabilitation might consist of, et cetera, et cetera. So none of this is to say that the criminal law is a solution to social problems. It's, it's a very bad solution to, to most, if not all, social problems. But Jessica Valenti uh, tweeted the other day that uh, that kind of ruin, lifetime ruin seems an appropriate punishment. Uh, it's a rare, rare moment that I'll agree with Jessica Valenti on almost anything. But I think, I think, yeah, I mean, that seems absurd to me. There is a piece 
in The Guardian about Louis C.K. Apparently he is attempting a comeback and appeared at New York's Comedy Cellar um, sort of without announcement uh, to do a 15-minute set the other day. And the author's description of that was that it was, quote, indecent, which I thought was an interesting terminology <laughs> as well. And it also, and the, and the piece also lied about the accusations against him. Yeah, again, I don't have an answer about, you know, what number of months people should be socially ostracized for either. There's a book by, I think it's James Whitman, on uh, the uh, what the Nazis learned from American law. And he makes the point that the one commonality between American law and Nazi law is the idea that people don't just commit crimes, but they are criminals. That becomes your essence, your definition as a criminal. I mean, and there seems to be a touch of that with this. I'm speaking with Heidi Matthews, who teaches law at York University in Toronto. For sure. There's, there's, so the idea that there are just creepy men, you know, seems to be a, a sticking thing. And I think that's problematic. It's unclear uh, to what extent, right, that kind of allegation is going to, or that kind of like moniker or label will stick on somebody like Asia Argento, right? Yeah, that, well, she's a fascinating case, but I'm also interested in the Ronell case. And so much of the discourse around the Ronell case uh, has been about academia as a workplace, the unequal power relations and all the ass kissing that goes on and uh, the abuse by senior faculty of junior faculty and, and, and graduate students and such. The sex is only one part of the story, but it's really what spices things up. No, I couldn't agree with you more in terms of describing the situation and and why it is. What's fascinating to me is that the strongest explanator for why that case is getting so much attention is that it can be slotted into the frame of MeTooism. And that, to me, is very, very, very disappointing because we're losing, as I mentioned before, we're losing out on a, on a whole other frame that just asks about the changing relationships between superiors and inferiors in academia and the, and the incredible precarity with which young PhD students, um, academics and postdocs are operating in. That's what we need to be talking about here. You know, it's completely unclear to me, having gone through the materials, what actually the sexual component of that whole thing was really about, not least because of the sexualities of the, of the two individuals involved. So Ronell is, is queer and the complainant is actually gay. And he himself said that he started the complaint process before Me Too and doesn't see this as having anything to do with Me Too. But she was just so abusive in, in, in so many, in myriad, myriad ways, right? And so in other words, what's distressing to me is that all the others, so as, an, as a young academic, I can tell you that I know, as I'm sure you do, countless instances of just rampant and pathological abuse of supervisor, by supervisors of supervisees. And somehow, unless there's a sexual component, we don't have space to talk about that right now. It was the what is to be done question at the end of these interviews. And you've already professed that you're not the uh, the repository of answers, which, of course, is profoundly disappointing to me. But when you make these kinds of arguments, you're always accused of dismissing uh, suffering. You're intellectualizing. You're um, whataboutting. Uh, you're doing all kinds of things that uh, are meant to sideline or diminish people's actual pain and suffering. How can we talk about these things thoughtfully without being dismissive? When anybody reads my writing, it's certainly very clear in the writing, and I hope in, in my discussions as well, that none of this is generated in any sense by a desire to 
blame victims or dismiss suffering, but what it is generated by is a profound discomfort with a politics rooted in victimization. It's unclear to me that that's a space for actually theorizing the productive in a social space. It's unclear to me that that's really the way in which to start a discussion that is really, I hate to say, but anything other than profoundly reactionary and conservative. Because when you make a claim to victimhood, you're asserting that already from the beginning, you're right, right? So the hashtag believe women, um, and that everyone else's efforts to sort of interrogate the assumptions embedded in your claims, which are political claims, right? We often forget that Me Too contributions are profoundly political. They're asking us to change the way we relate to one another in society. They're many times asking us to concretely change the law. And by the way, those two things often go together without necessarily making a positive case outside of the claim to victimization itself. Right. And, and I just want to be clear, especially from a left perspective, um, that we should demand more from those who are wishing to make profound social uh, and justice based modifications. And that shouldn't be it really shouldn't be controversial. What kind of more are you thinking of? Well, for one, not starting from the place of victimhood, because articulating a harm, especially within the context of Me Too, uh, is taken to generate a solution in a rather straightforward manner without actually sitting down and doing a profound redistributive and cost-benefit analysis of the solutions being put forward. And I've mentioned uh, affirmative consent as one of them, and we're not given space to question, okay, what are actually the unintended consequences, right? Or the negative um, downsides or the biases that are would actually play out if we instituted um, a different approach, both in terms of generally how we think about, you know, quote-unquote creepy situations um, or how we think about things that actually constitute crimes. And, and so we're, it really behooves us to ask the simple question of who's going to win and who's going to lose, if we move forward in the sorts of ways that are being articulated. And also not unimportantly, I think this is important, part of what MeTooism is asking us to do actually is to forget oftentimes about not just the complexity of the sexual experience in general, right? But asking us to shift how we understand what's good and what's bad about sex, right? And that has a profoundly and a very straightforward Foucauldian to the extent that you can be a straightforward Foucaultian, in a straightforward Foucaultian sense, has really negative implications. And to be precise about that, sex negative implications. From that respect, you know, we we should be looking more, looking back to um, radical ideas about sexual liberation instead of continuing to institute the punitive sex conservative logic that actually undergirds second wave feminism. I was Heidi Matthews, an assistant professor at the Osgoode Hall Law School of York University, Toronto. You can find her on Twitter under the handle Heidi underscore underscore Matthews. That's two underscores. Using only one will take you to a sex bot. In her Twitter bio, she describes herself as a socialist feminist sex radical. And that's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a bit of Adventures Close to Home by The Slits. Till next week, bye. Bye.